As our children are being dismissed, if you'll open in the scriptures, please, to 1 Samuel chapter 15. 1 Samuel chapter 15. Our message tonight is uh, for all of us, but it is in one way uniquely for the officers of our congregation and as well for Mike tonight as he is installed as a new elder here at Pear Orchard. 1 Samuel 15. Let's give ourselves to the word of the Lord. We'll read verses 1 through 24. And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the day when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them at Telaim. 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, Go, depart, go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fatted calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless they devoted to destruction. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning, and it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself, and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction." And Samuel said to Saul, Stop, I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, Speak. And Samuel said, Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. And why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what is evil in the sight of the Lord? And Samuel said, and Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on mission on which the Lord sent me. 
I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took the spoil, the sheep and the ox, and the best of the things devoted to destruction to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he also has rejected you from being king. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Let's pray together. Father, as we turn to your word tonight, we also with with great thanksgiving Acknowledge the beauty and the majesty of what you have done for your own honor through Lee and Emma these 40 years. We praise you for how you have made them your servants, how you have kept them, how you have quite literally fed them body and soul. And now, Lord, in these latter years, we do pray that your hand would be mighty upon them, that you would give in return, Lord, great, a gracious reward for the great number of cups of cool water to which they poured out on the mission field. Lord, now grant that we would understand your word and be challenged by it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Between two farms in Valley View, Alberta, some years ago, you could find two parallel fences, only two feet apart, which ran for a half a mile. Why would there be two fences when one would do? Well, two farmers, Paul and Oscar, had a disagreement that erupted into a feud. Paul wanted to build a fence between their land and split the cost, but Oscar was unwilling to contribute. And since he wanted to keep cattle on his own land, Paul went ahead and built the fence anyway. After the fence was completed, Oscar said to Saul, I see that we have a fence. What do you mean, we? Paul replied. I had the property lines surveyed and built the fence two feet inside my land. And that means that some of my land is outside the fence. If any of your cows set foot on my land, I will shoot them. Oscar, knowing that Paul wasn't joking, when he eventually decided to use his land adjoining Paul's for pasture, he was forced to build another fence two feet away. Oscar and Paul are both gone now, but their double fence stands as a monument to the price that we pay for stubborn, hard-heartedness. Well, our text of Scripture rehearses for us the troublesome outcomes for Saul the earliest king of Israel, due to many things, but certainly his hard-heartedness to the Lord. Our text is dripping with a multitude of spiritual lessons on sacred leadership, and it's well-suited to our context tonight as we install Mike as a new elder here at Pear Orchard. 
Our text unfolds some of the events that led to the rejection of Saul as Israel's king. Now you'll remember that the Amalekites were descendants of Esau, and they were those who mistreated the Israelites as they were coming up out of Egypt. In Exodus chapter 17, Moses prophesied that one day God would deal with the Amalekites. The key to understanding our passage rests in the words of verse 1. Read it with me. The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Listen to the words of the Lord. So key for us tonight as a congregation and in all the days of our lives as a people of God is that we too as believers, especially as office bearers in the church of Christ, that we listen to the word of the Lord, that we heed the Lord's counsel. We must guard against a willful stubbornness of heart. Now look again with me at verse 3. It is a very difficult word. This is among the most hard of the prophetic statements that you'll see anywhere in the scriptures. Saul is commanded to bring harem warfare on the Amalekites, holy war, to place these people and everything that belonged to them under the ban of God's holy wrath. Now, this is the reign of God breaking in, in time and space, in a remarkably powerful way. But I want you to hold this thought in mind, that also remember that this is but a foretaste of what God will do in the last day when he wraps up history. This is a foretaste of God's righteous judgment when history closes. Ralph Davis says, it is horrible It is true, it is not sanitized, but it is just. For Saul, this act would amount to worship. It would act as a test of his allegiance. So I want us to dive into the text tonight, and I want us to look at some vital lessons on sacred leadership for the church at large, but for our congregation and for our officers. There are six of them that I want to run through with brevity. The first lesson of sacred leadership is that God's spiritual leaders often do not get to pick their battles. Rather, it is God's holiness, his commandments, and our allegiance to his honor that thrust us into those most difficult places. Often the Church of Christ and her spiritual warfare arises because God's character and his honor demand that leaders must stand for the truth and stand for the glory of God in his providential moments. Look at verse 9. It shows us this sacred leadership principle in great relief. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and fattened calves and all that was good, and would not utterly destroy them. When Saul spared King Agat and the best of the flocks and the herds, it seemed admirable. To the people of God, it seemed admirable. To the leadership of Israel, it seemed admirable. 
But it was nothing less than rebellion against the word of the Lord. It is what Puritan pastors and our forefathers in the faith called will worship. The worship of our own desire, our own will, putting that ahead of the commandments of the Lord. Saul had decided in his own vain heart how best that God was to be pleased. In verse 15, Saul frames his rebellion against the Lord in this word. He says, the people and I have saved the best to sacrifice to the Lord. Now, we don't know with absolute certainty, but we can presume in many respects that this was certainly after the fact that they had spared many of the things because they looked valuable, they looked wonderful. It was as the apple was on the tree. It looked good to eat. Dear ones, that the holy God had commanded Saul and Israel was in fact to be an act of worship. But by withholding, quote, the best from the Lord, it was an act of contempt for God, not an act of faith. And let us here in this body of Christ always determine that we shall listen to the word of the Lord and that we shall put our own will last and forever buried if need be that we shall always listen to the will of the Lord first. We will put his holiness, his glory, his honor, his truth ahead of our own way. And therefore, we will let the Lord pick our spiritual battles for us. Let our leadership beware of will worship where we presume to know better than the Lord himself the things that we are to focus on, the battles that we are to fight or not to fight. Sacred leaders don't often get to pick their own battles. Second, I want you to embrace with me that sacred leadership means that we hold on to a broken heart over the sinfulness of sin and the wreckage that it produces. In the language of Jesus, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. In humility, we are to mourn the destruction that rebellion brings. There are times when church leaders ought to have a long face and a broken heart. In verses 10 and 11, we see it set before us. The word of the Lord came to Samuel, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me, has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. Saul's hard heart and rebellion grieved both the Lord and Samuel. Because Samuel was a man centered on service to the Lord, he was grieved over this horrible situation and spent the whole night crying out in mourning to the Lord. He's angry, and it is not altogether certain exactly what he was angry about. Was he angry that Saul had disobeyed, or was he angry that he had anointed this one who had disobeyed? But certainly he understands and is angry that the whole situation that had such promise had now fallen apart. 
He mourns for the clouding of God's glory. He mourns that the kingdom will be torn from Saul. He mourns that one who was to have been a shepherd in Israel is now revealed to be a wolf in sheep's clothing. And the mark of godly leadership amidst the people of God is that we will always maintain a broken and a mournful heart over the destructive power of rebellion against God's pleasures. I wish at times, dear members of the church, you could be in session meetings when elders make some of the most difficult decisions that are ever made in the church, and there is a tear on the cheek of many a man around that circle. A broken and a mournful spirit. A holy grief that sacred leaders maintain over the misery of sin's wickedness. I want you to embrace a third spiritual lesson from our text, that godly leadership will guard against the promotion of its own glory, but will gladly seek the glory of God in every way. How do we see it? Look at verse 12 with me. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning, and it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself. Saul presumed that the victory over the Amalekites was due to his own leadership. He believed that his own strength and savvy and strength had won the day. To mark his own worth and exalt himself before the people, he had a monument erected to himself. Now who of us here would ever do that? Well, we probably wouldn't erect a physical monument to ourselves, but we do it all the time, don't we, when we toot our own horn about whatever it may be. And we're establishing in the eyes of others that they should have a monument to our greatness. Saul could have done the right thing. As we see in other parts of the Old Testament, he could have commanded his officers to pile up a great heap of stones and plaster over the stones and then whitewash the stones and then on the stones write, the Lord has wrought his victory. But he didn't. He set up a monument to himself exactly the opposite. But listen to a sacred New Testament leader, Paul, when he writes in Romans 15, I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. That's remarkable. Brennan Manning, in his book Ruthless Trust, which is not orthodox in every place, but nonetheless is greatly helpful and challenging, he wrote this, Though we often disregard our need for an unfaltering trust in the love of God, this is our most urgent need. It is the remedy for much of our soul's sickness, our melancholy, our self-exaltation. The heart converted from mistrust to trust in the irreversible forgiveness of Jesus Christ is redeemed from the corrosive power of fear. The trusting heart says, Abba, Father, I surrender my will. I surrender my life. It is yours entirely. And with boundless confidence, 
for you are my ever-loving Father. Sacred leaders increasingly live out of that mode of a boundless confidence in the unfaltering love of the Heavenly Father who is both for them and who is leading them. One of our greatest temptations for any of us, but especially for a ministry leader in the church, is that in our heart and mind, it eventually becomes about us. The truest sacred leaders are always seeking to make it about God's pleasure for the fame of his own name. And so we guard against this self-deception for vainglory. Saul becomes so blinded by his own self-deceit and personal glory that even when he's confronted by the utter facts of his rebellion in a rather humorous way by Samuel, what is this bleeding of sheep that I hear in my ears? He still has the audacity to deny it and say, but I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission the Lord has sent me. Blinded by self-glory, he had no heart left for the glory of God. Sacred leadership will guard against self-promotion and be quick to seek the rightful place of God's exaltation. Look with me at a fourth lesson on sacred leadership. It is that spiritual leadership attuned to the kind is attuned to the kind of worship and offerings that truly please the Lord. It is spiritual leadership that does not invent ways to offer sacrifice and worship to God with which he is not pleased. Our passage crescendos with one of the greatest poetic passages in all of Scripture, certainly in the Old Testament. Look at verses 22 and 23. Let me read them again. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. What Samuel is saying here is that offerings are a delight to God only when accompanied by a true heart of devotion to that which the Lord has commanded. And when our heart is given to those things that the Lord has not commanded, no matter what we may bring to the Lord, it is unacceptable. Samuel is teaching us that the only offerings that God accepts are those that he commands. And Saul sought to offer unauthorized offerings. And Saul te Samuel teaches that to invent ways of pleasing God beyond his word is not obedience but rebellion. Look at the severity of the language. Rebellion is like divination. Divination is the occult, it's the magic arts. And Samuel here equates what Saul had done as the service of Satan. What a powerful critique. Presumption 
To presume upon the Lord is like idolatry, the service of a false god. And what is the root distinction between true and false worship? Look at it in the second half of verse 23. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord. Sacred leadership is ever and only reforming its practices of worship and her life by the principles of God's word. A fifth lesson in godly leadership. Sacred leadership keeps first things first. Put in another way, it keeps the heart of the matter, the matter of the heart. Here in our text, we see the heart of the matter is to determine whom you have given your heart's allegiance to. Read verse 24 with me. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words. And what was the reason he did so? Because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Do you hear it in the text? Listen, listen to the voice of the Lord. And here in the crescendo of the passage, Saul admits that rather than doing so, he listened to the voice of the people. Now, brothers and sisters, I say this with all sincerity and humility. You want sacred leadership in your congregation that does not listen to your voice first. Not that they are insensitive to your voice and have no inclination to want to hear your voice, but that they will never give in to your voice against the voice of God. That's the leadership that you must have and you must long for. Sacred leadership will stand against the world if they must. A general named Horatio Vere was the commander of British forces in the 1600s in the Netherlands. He wrote this powerful application of our biblical principle. He said this to his soldiers, soldiers that carry their lives in their hands have need above all others to carry grace in their hearts so that having made peace with God, they may be fit to encounter men and having by faith in Christ disarmed death before they die, they may sacrifice their life with the more courage and comfort. What a remarkable statement by a leader of men that we disarm the fear of man in advance by a sacred commitment to the voice of the Lord and to the grace of God that has fallen upon us undeserved. So sacred church leaders disarm the fear of man in the absence, uh, excuse me, in advance, carrying grace in their hearts in order that they might be ready to sacrifice with courage and fearlessness. And one final sacred lesson of godly leadership. Sacred leadership recognizes but one king and head of the church, our ruler, Jesus Christ. Well, how do we see it? Not directly in the text. But in our text in verse 26, Samuel says to Saul, You have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. 
The kingship was torn from Saul and given to David. And as we know, kingship in Israel and David's kingship in particular foreshadowed the true king of God's people, our Lord Jesus. And so two final theological implications for us tonight from that point. The true and rightful king has come. He is here. He is presently the head of the church. There is no one in the church, sacred leadership among them, who will ever be given the right to headship in the church. We're nothing but under-shepherds. And we rule not by primacy, by primary authority, but by derived authority from the true king and head of the church. Sacred leaders are sheepdogs and nothing more. And second, remember that God's holy war against our rebellion His holy and infinite wrath has fallen on this king who is over us. Our sin and its penalty and its power has been broken. And every one of us united to Christ has passed under this ban, under the purifying judgment of God. And we have become a holy offering to God. But for our purposes tonight, sacred leadership is a holy offering to God. It is not a holy offering first and foremost to God's people. It is God's gift to his church that is meant to have its gaze fixed upon him. Sacred leadership has become united to Christ and is devoted to him as an offering. Sacred leadership is devoted to the honors and the pleasures of the king. And sacred leadership is holy unto the Lord And set apart for him alone. For every leader who is here tonight and all of the leaders in our congregation, be they men or women in our women's ministry, sacred leadership must live knowing daily whose heart, our heart in advance, has already been given to. We must know whose we are. Let's pray together. Father, how we thank you for this ever brief review. We thank you for the ways in which this this man who becomes a foil for us with mistaken principles of leadership, we ask you, Lord, Now what we have seen and heard right upon the leaders in this place. We beg you. We beg you for the next generation of leadership. Whomever you may call. This will be the kind of man. This will be kind of woman. Only who can ascend to a place of servant leadership. We ask it with our gaze fixed upon Christ in his sweet name.